Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. If you are a subscriber to our print magazine, uh, it is winging its way to your mailbox uh, anytime this week. Uh, Beautiful issue, uh, and uh, we're very proud of it. Um, Every one of my colleagues has... Well, and actually, yes. Every one of my colleagues has a has a contribution to this issue, um, beginning with associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. On the on the aftermath of the election, uh, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. On the aftermath of the election, and executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Not on the aftermath of the election, but rather a review of Rod Dreher's uh, Live Not by Lies. Um, so, Noah Rothman, uh, we got an email uh, today from a, a skeptical and angry listener, irritated that we were uh, downplaying the severity of the coronavirus surge, pointing out that uh, the hospitalizations across the United States are at their highest level uh, ever uh, at about 97,000. And yesterday we were saying that the stats looked better than people were giving them credit for being and that we were still in a a frame in which uh, uh, the media were, you know, pushing a sort of panic narrative. You um, wanted to talk today about a piece in Axios relating to how we are being told we should we should discuss or talk about the pandemic. Yeah, well, it's the only thing I can think about this morning. It's if I opened my eyes and that was the first thing I read. It's been with me ever since. You know, just to pivot briefly off your news hook, there are um, email. You know, go to the, as I talked about yesterday, just go to the homepage of The Atlantic and you can get your daily dose of searing pessimism. Um, the latest today is from Derek Thompson, who has committed himself to the pandemic beat, um, who notes that, yeah, the statistics are going to look better. They're looking a little bit better. But guess what? It's illusory. It's all a lie because it's going to get so much terrible after Thanksgiving. It might. We don't know. But He's pretty sure it's it's going to get so much more terrible after Thanksgiving. I mean, even if, that, if it doesn't, it's going to get so much terrible before Christmas and after Christmas. So it's just going to be terrible. So if you want your daily dose of terrible, it's really not hard to find it. I don't know why you got to lean on us to reinforce your terrible. But, you know, the big problem here is that a lot of us, all of us on this podcast are conservatives. And according to, you know, the if elite sympathies, um, and, you know, just a general consensus among opinion makers, and particularly in the press, Republicans are the problem. Now, this, so according to this Axios piece that I wrote, wrote rather, I read, <laughs> which um, discusses uh, Frank Luntz's findings. Frank Luntz is a pollster, and he talks about how it is particularly true for Republicans um, that the language that we use to talk about coronavirus and the pandemic is threatening and can produce a hostile reaction in them. They react instinctively to them. So we need to change the language that we use to make it a little, make Republicans a little more sympathetic to this crippling pandemic that you're in, if you haven't noticed. For example, you shouldn't be calling them lockdowns. Instead of calling them lockdowns, call them 
stay-at-home orders. And you shouldn't call them safety measures. Instead, call them protocols, as opposed to mandates, directives, controls, or orders. Um, Talk about personal responsibility and national duty in order to get people to do things like wear masks. Uh, And even the naming of the virus. We shouldn't call it... um, we call it a pandemic instead of coronavirus because a pandemic sounds more significant and scary. Um, this is so strikingly condescending, incredibly patronizing. The notion that Republicans have a, are, are bamboozled by synonyms is uh, more than a little insulting. I mean, what you, you, yeah, we should just call them, um, you know, little death panels. It's the sort of thing that a Republican can really respond to because it just triggers it just triggers their, their affection for Sarah Palin. And that's something that they, they'll manage to, to bridge this cognitive gap that they have understanding the pandemic. There is no um, humility on the part of people who particularly populate newsrooms um, who are inclined towards a, a, a particular outlook that is um, observable among social engineers who perceive themselves to be. Uh, capable of reordering the infinitely complex series of engagements that we call society and creating the conditions that would allow us to navigate this pandemic, but also create a better world after the pandemic. Uh, And um, people like Thompson, Derek Thompson at the Atlantic are among many of these people who've been doing this for now the better part of a year, reorganizing how businesses structure themselves, literally structure themselves, for example, in restaurants where seating is going to go. He, he was writing about this in May, like reordering restaurants. Um, it is, there's such striking hubris and no accounting for the predictions that have gone wrong. There have been a ton of predictions about how this pandemic would manifest. And a lot of them didn't actually materialize, but there's no audit. There's no retroactive audit of your uh, predictions that go wrong. Because you're on to the next atrocious prediction well, that's going to happen in the next two weeks. Well, let's remember the Atlantic's Amanda Mull and her piece on the now uh, in the news Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, uh, who uh, is being attacked by Donald Trump for failing to use emergency powers he does not possess to interfere with the certification of the election in Georgia that Joe Biden won. Brian Kemp, according to Amanda Mull, was engaging in human sacrifice. Just about everybody. Georgia's quote, the headline on her piece, which was in May, was Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice because he was because he was lifting lockdowns. Which we should, you know, we talked about this at the time, but that didn't happen. Didn't happen in Florida. Didn't happen in Georgia. Florida still, to this day, really hasn't yielded the kind of orgy of death that people predicted we would be uh, dealing with. And this, 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 this um, conceit that they engage in where Republicans are the problem here is not supported by any objective metric. It's just kind of a perception, but that perception has taken hold and it exists entirely to reinforce a, a self-conception among liberals of themselves as being better, more responsible people. One of the, one of the uses of polling or one of the uses that polling uh, one of the things that polling has been used for over the last 30 years, and Frank Luntz is a big uh, proponent of this and player in this world, is uh, the phrasing game, is the idea that you go out and you test words to see how they hit the ear 
of the voter. And whether you say death taxes as opposed to inheritance tax, or you say death panel, whatever, all this stuff, and how they work and how they affect people. And you do this in focus groups and all of that. And it is all phrenology. It is all for now. It has an effect because people buy it, and so therefore, suddenly, an entire side of the political spectrum will start using the phrenological term, like death taxes, as opposed to the inheritance tax. Um, so the fact that they're talking more about the phenomenon of the inheritance tax and thus turning people against it is that the credit is given to the fact that they change the term and they call it a death tax as opposed to the inheritance tax, rather than simply highlighting the issue and making people think about whether or not it's fair that the money that they've already been taxed on gets then taxed at 50% when they die, money that has already gone through the federal tax ringer and does not does not have to be taxed a second time, right? Okay, so but this is a ma- big business in the United States, and it's a big political business in the United States and, there, and on both sides. And there is a linguist at Berkeley named George Lakoff. And George Lakoff has been going around for 30, 40 years saying the problem with Democrats is that they borrow conservative terminology and they therefore are on linguistic defense and they don't phrase things in ways that would be helpful to them but are, are but are you know secretly or unconsciously helpful to republicans and conservatives and you know the evil uh, reactionary forces um uh all of this entirely unsupported by the, sl- the slightest shred of evidence it is just a kind of thrilling way to get your jollies in to say actually people really would agree with me if we only used a trigger word, you know, the sort of the hypnotic trigger word that would get them to calm down and listen to sweet reason. Yeah, this reminds me this this kind of condescending um, attitude uh, towards conservatives and, and how there's most of our problems are due to this some sort of underlying defect uh, in us. Um, this reminds me of how this happens every few years. There's a study, a sort of psychological study of the differences between conservatives and liberals. And it's always something like, uh, you know, uh, psychologists uh, in a big study uh, find that um, conservatives, uh, their personalities are oriented around fear and liberals are oriented around openness, you know, and it's something, and it's all nonsense. It's all, again, it's, it's, it's phrenology and, but it's all, it's all done to sort of, Say well, so. So we have to figure out, you know, how to sort of um, uh, apply kind of uh, mass scale therapy to conservatives to get them to to see uh, sweet reason. It's uh, Christine. You, 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 uh, as the only one of us who was actually like went through the whole PhD process <laughs> at a at a university. Um, how much of this kind of talk? do you think uh, is is redolent of the, not just the sort of the business stuff I'm talking about, about what, what words to use that people will enjoy, but sort of of this kind of academic argle-bargle, you know, sort of blather? I, I think I think there's a lot of that there, but the broader in the broader sense, um, the academic uh, jargon has filtered into what can broadly just des- be described as the kind of 
technocratic elite. And both to Noah's point and to Abe's point and yours, there's a real, there, there's a kind of humility gap. We talk about gender gaps. We talk about, so I think on the left, they look at the right and they say, oh, there's this huge ignorance gap. Like we're, we're more well-educated. We actually know what's the reasonable approach. We, we follow the science, you know, all these phrases, right? And then, but the right looks at the left and says, there's a huge humility gap here because we listened to you technocrats and it got us into this mess. So we're going to vote for this reality TV star because everything we've been listening to from you for all these years has not worked. I do think at the academic technocratic elite, we have seen in American history when when the country turns itself over to the ministrations of a technocratic elite, it's not all good. The progressive era is a good example of this. You saw some some real efforts to do top-down, elite-down, supposedly social science and scientific-based uh, efforts to control society. And a lot of the fear, uh, ironically, was actually on the part of the technocratic elite, which I think it still is today. It's why Abe's point is kind of ironic. They actually fear the lumpen <laughs> proletariat in, in some ways, and they fear the kind of independent-minded skeptical, libertarian-ish uh, American citizen who watches Fox News. They f- they fear that person as much as they want to correct them and educate them. They fear everything. They fear the destructive force of capitalism. They fear law enforcement. They fear, I mean, the whole, it's, it's just a question of framing when they come up <laughs> right. with these cockamamie studies. Yeah. But you know what they don't really fear as much as they say they do? The coronavirus. Because otherwise they wouldn't be going out and dining when they say everybody needs to go home and dine. It's literally two stories yesterday from... California, San Jose mayor and a Los Angeles County supervisor, both of whom were caught violating the protocols that they've been hectoring everybody to do, like banning outdoor dining. The LA County supervisor was outdoor dining. San Jose mayor went to his family's home to have Thanksgiving. These sort of things, these rules are for little people. I think the little people are the problem. They're the ones who are going to get infected, not you. You're smart. We need to now. I think there's enough California hypocrisy and malfeasance that we can develop a French laundry principle, right? Because there was also a, a restaurateur who wanted to keep his restaurant open who slapped a big banner on that said French laundry, patio dining. <laughs> yeah. Well, the French laundry, of course, being the place that Gavin Newsom right. went to with with um, uh, public no health officials. And no masks. With, with, with public lobbyists. health officials. Right. Yeah. Lobbyists. Um, I mean, look, the idea that. Uh, uh, policies and rules and stuff are for little people is a signature fact in the American political shift to the right dating back to the mid 1960s. Uh, the foremost example I can give is something that was in the news last year, which was uh, busing, right? So forced busing was a policy imposed on working class and lower middle class people, uh, the people who sent their kids to, you know, say in New York or in Boston, sent their kids to, to, to inner city public schools. And the idea was in order to enforce a new regimen of, of, of forced integration, kids were going to get on buses and be driven 45 minutes, an hour away from their homes rather than being able to walk to school and therefore walk home right after school or, Whatever, you know, my mother, for example, not that she was, you know, a kid in 1970, unfortunately, because then I would be nice and 30 years younger than I am now. Um, but, you know, my mother, when she went to school in the 1930s and, and, and 40s in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, walked home from school to have lunch. That was what schooling was in the United States. It was neighborhood schooling. So they, they eliminate neighborhood schooling in order 
to you know impose this new integrationist orthodoxy until and then it became clear as this stuff was going on that of course uh, many of the politicians and many of the think tankers and uh, columnists and all of that who were preaching this most loudly sent their kids to private school they did not have to participate in this game of social engineering using their children as you know as props in a social engineering game that stuff which went on constantly in the 60s and 70s much more unconsciously or sort of weirdly innocently on the part of liberals and the left than it is than that then happens today after you know decades of the exposure of the hypocrisy stuff that we're talking about played a real role in having people say i don't really believe politicians when they say that what they're doing they're thinking about me they're not thinking about me they're thinking about other they've got other calculations in their head they're not they're not representing me they're representing a, a, a series of ideas that do not help me or are not really designed to be of immediate help to me which is why i vote for them there there's a weird way though in which um the current era is, is somewhat more dangerous, right? Because by embracing a policy like busing, you had well-intentioned liberal politicians listening to a particular policy uh, uh, scheme that that was certainly fueled by some who were pursuing a more radical ideology, but it was, you know, they tried it. Now we have a, a, an entire ideological regime, which instead of doing a specific policy test like busing, wants to actually uh, re-educate people with, you know, the anti-racism stuff. The, I mean, I, I'm thinking of that that podcast that we talked about some time ago that the New York Times started about, you know, like, well, the well-meaning white parents one. What That's not yeah. the title. The specific white uh, title. Something the, white people. Something yeah. white parents. Like basically nice about how white parents, nice white parents, yeah. right? So there's an effort now to actually re-educate people and kind of get everybody on board with the broader ideology. And then from there, whatever policies are, are thrown out will have to be accepted because the the room and space for dissent will be, will have shrunk, right? Um, it's kind of mental busing in a way. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that uh, uh, after I, after I read the, yeah, but I, I do think that the, uh, the interesting aspect of this is we can see in this great divide between this sort of uh, uh, activist uh, Gen Zer class of people um, who, you know, cry because Jordan Peterson, their their publishing house is going to publish, you know, their their the house they the publishing house they work at is going to publish Jordan Peterson, or you know, can't work around Barry Weiss because she makes them feel unsafe. And all of that, all of whom have gone through a re-education mill of some sort at, on campus and have come out of it the other side with a set of attitudes and ideas, but they make up 30% of the population. The, the number of people in the United States who are graduates of four-year colleges is around 30%, not 50%, not 70%, not 90%. And these attitudes that they have, that they are bringing to the workplace, that they are bringing to the media workplace and all of that, are not shared by a majority of people. And in fact, not only are they not shared, but the imposition, the orthodox, the imposition of the orthodoxy that is required by these doctrines may have exactly the same effect that I'm talking about in relation to busing. But it's less visible in some odd ways because 
<clears throat> busing, that stuff all happened uh, where it was undeniable. You could, you could see it, right? That was Canarsie, Brooklyn. That was South Boston. That were These were places where you could not look away. But if they're happening in Door County, Wisconsin, or in you know I, I don't know you know in Hibbing, Minnesota, or or you know in the on the the Iron Range of Minnesota, or in all these places, they're just not going to be seen. But they are. But that revolt, <clears throat> which is part of the Trump story, both in 2016 and 2020, is very real. I think. Uh, let me tell you guys now about our first sponsor today, Better Help. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. You won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily at betterhelp.com slash reviews. So visit betterhelp.com slash commentary. That's betterhelp and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And we have a special offer for commentary podcast listeners Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash commentary. That's betterhelp.com slash commentary. Uh, Christine, you um, you were uh, interested in a in the what sir we're talking about about um, where Democrats won in 2020 and what that tells us about this cultural divide that we're now talking about. Yeah, I was, I was just, the, Brookings had a report, uh, you know, there's been a lot of these, you know, sort of postmortems about the election and, and the shifting uh, fortunes based on both education and income between the Republican party and the democratic party. And we have seen a pretty sizable shift, although still people who, who report exit polling, of course, which we should have the caveat always do about exit polling higher income people still tended to vote for Donald Trump. But there's been a real shift among the percentage of uh, people who are wealthy and well-educated who are moving into the Democratic Party. And it's ironic because for those of us who came of age in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, it was always the, you know, country club Republicans. That was the phrase you always heard. The rich, you know, Republicans are the party of the rich and Democrats are the party of the working person. But what the Democrats have pretty clearly become are the party of a technocratic educated elite. And that that is the concern going forward um, from my perspective about every about their policy efforts and their their claim to speak for the people who they claim to speak for. So, for example, here uh, this is uh, both Wall Street money and Silicon Valley money and dark money. All three of those sources of, of uh, money 
went overwhelmingly to Joe Biden in this last election. I mean, astonishingly so. I think with dark money in particular, something the left always rails about, I think Trump raised around 20 million in dark money and it was like 160 million for Biden. So so there's a lot of money flowing to the Democrats from a technocratic elite. And then if you look at the policies they are asking working people to embrace, it's things like Mark Zuckerberg being given financial and policy control over a New Jersey public school and he claims he's going to fix it and it's a disaster. It's it's uh you know people like Andrew Cuomo doing the same thing in partnerships with Microsoft and Bill Gates. There are these efforts to kind of impose technocratic solutions on the people who the Democrats claim to represent at the same time that the people crafting those policies have no experience of the working class, even in for several generations in their own families. These are college educated elite who've gone through, as you said, John, the kind of ideological higher education mill. So I, fe- I feel like 10, 20 years, we're going to see that we're going to be watching that pan out. Um, but as a matter of policy in the next four to eight years, there are going to be a lot of clashes between and, and I'll interrupt myself to say that's what people didn't like about Hillary Clinton was that technocratic, leave it to me, I know what I'm talking about attitude. Biden doesn't have that, but he might govern that way. Um, In policy terms, uh, interesting thing emerged yesterday, uh, a paper by uh, academics uh, at the Wharton School, academic name, uh, Sylvan Catherine, uh, about student loan forgiveness, which, as you know, is a major topic of discussion. People are saying that Biden should use executive uh, power, an executive order in some fashion or other to impose, to basically forgive uh, student debt, you know, uh, college student debt. And this is very popular, right, among the democratic tech, you know, the technocratic elite that you were talking about, uh, this paper, which is called the distributional effects of student loan forgiveness. Uh, Catherine says we find forgiveness to be a highly regressive policy. Full cancellation would distribute $192 billion to the top 20% of earners and only 29 billion to the bottom 20%. So what's interesting here is that, of course, uh, I think this would come as a kind of shock to the technocratic elite that is itself up in arms and terrified and really upset about income inequality, which is the major kind of wonky issue for liberals and the left of the last five or six years, aside from global warming, right, or climate change. But the policies that they embrace are only going to exacerbate this, particularly at the federal level. Why? Because of the reasons that I cited, which is that only 30% of Americans go through four years of college, which means that only 30 years of Americans generate really high levels of student loan debt. A lot of which is graduate education debt, I might add. Okay, there's also, so graduate education debt, student loan debt, expensive schools, expensive schools, not community colleges, not, you know, two-year colleges near your house or or an in-state uh, in-state education at a land-grant school, but, you know, private liberal arts colleges, four-year colleges, stuff like that. And so what's happening here is the classic bubble effect, which is you don't know anybody who doesn't have student loan debt. Why? Because that's who you are. That's the class that you're in. There is a compelling, albeit 
somewhat Marxian analysis of the 2020 elections that attributes Donald Trump's um, growth of support in uh, urban areas among minority voters, among Latinos and African-Americans to wage growth. That there has been a substantial measurable wage growth across the board, particularly among low-income earners over the course of the last four years. They felt themselves doing better and voted accordingly. Um, I don't know how compelling that is as political analysis, but it's certainly uh, incontrovertible economically. And the longer-term implications of that, if it is borne out, are um, profoundly destabilizing to the, the, the worldview of the modern progressive who perceives themselves to be at the leading a, a parade of uh, minority voters towards a, a more enlightened future. And they're, as they're, as they're embracing this worldview, the parade is thinning out behind them. Well, look, that result, which is this net, I think it was $4,000 per family income growth from like 2015 to 2019. I think it was net four thousand. So the so that if you you know if you if your family income was fifty six thousand in twenty fifteen, it was like sixty thousand in twenty nineteen, and therefore you had measurable improvement in your living standards for the first time in I don't know ten, twelve, fifteen years. Now remember the ten, twelve, fifteen years that preceded it, we had nine eleven, which was this you know shock that had a huge dislocating effect. And then, of course, we had the financial meltdown, which then depressed wages for a long time. So some of this was a restoration after years of of, of uh, recession. And some of it was uh, all the natural consequences of the economic growth of the second half of the, of the 20 teens, where we had the labor market getting incredibly tight. We had like th- unemployment at 3.8, 3.7% percent, which is effectively full employment. And the, the effect of full employment is that it rages, raises wages because you have to compete. Employers have to compete with each other for a workforce and therefore they pay people more than they did before. That's like that's like economics uh, 101. But because uh, half the country or half the country's elite did not want to acknowledge this very plain, obvious change... Uh, that they did not have to acknowledge once 2020 hit because the pandemic, you know, threw 20 million people out of work, at least temporarily. Uh, we uh, didn't have a conversation about that because, you know, Morning Joe didn't want to talk about that, didn't want to talk about wage growth. Uh, they don't want to talk about, they don't want to talk about this very plain well, and fact. To, to Noah's earlier point, uh, one of the reasons we don't hear about it with regard to lockdown is that most of the people talking about it haven't experienced job loss. They're still getting paid, often to sit at home and do their jobs remotely. Um, and so they haven't even experienced the precarity that so many Americans right now feel. And it's why they can talk in these kind of abstract terms about, you know, good for Pelosi for hanging tough and not, you know, not giving any sort of benefit to all these Americans out of work because she's sticking it to Trump. Or they talk about or they experience essential services as they talk about essential services as being like hospital workers and not their mechanic who's right. still working. Right. Or yeah. they or they right. don't really feel the fact that, you know, they don't really need dry cleaning anymore. So all their dry cleaners went out of business. They don't feel that. Right. But, you know, the other thing, Abe, is is um, is that uh, th- there's a flip side to this, which is that the media business, which is the, which is the transmission point <clears throat> for this information out to the American people, of course, 
the media business has been in a state of crisis for 15 years and that some of the incredible pessimism uh, that even continued in the in the reporting about the economy for 2018 and, and 2019, when in fact the economy was showing all kinds of signs of interesting, you know, uh, changes, positive changes at the lower level, in the lower quintiles, not at the upper, but in the lower quintile. Not that it wasn't doing great for the upper, because now apparently that is inelastic, you know. The top 1% are going to prosper no matter what. That that appears to be the case. But finally, there was movement in the lower quintiles. But people in the media don't feel it. They don't feel it because they live there in a business that is, you know, undergoing world historic, uh, ratcheting down transformation, you know, much more precarious employment, much more freelancing, all of that. There's not, well, but there's also, but, but there's also, um, I think it is, it has become, um, like a, a, a point of liberal, uh, theology to say that, um, social mobility is dead in the U.S. no matter what, right? Like you can't, like, you know, every, you, you, you can never permit that, that, that things might actually be moving, um, and that, and that people in the lower quintiles are, 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 are reaching the upper quintiles. That, that, that flies in the face of everything um, that you're that you're trying to assert about about the country and how it's broken. Because if it, it wouldn't be broken, uh, the system wouldn't be right. broken if that if that were if that were the case. I tell you what, they did feel they felt the 2008 recession because it was a top down recession. What did it hit? It hit money managers really hard. It hit your home value. That's the sort of thing that hits people in the upper upper percentages. And they reacted to that as that even though it was a much shallower recession compared to what we're, we dealt with over the course of this year, that was what felt like an existential crisis from the perspective of people in, in the press. This is much more academic. Right. Well, but I, I mean, you know, the interesting thing is that it, it, there is no question, and we've published article after article about this you by Yuval Levin, by Nick Eberstadt, that... This century, you know, the first uh, 20 years of this century have seen a reduction in all kinds of things like social mobility and actual physical mobility. The fact that people move less and less to find new employment elsewhere in the country, except for this technocratic class. Uh, One of the stories, of course, of the of the purpling of Arizona, Texas and Georgia is that people have been moving there who are younger and and more educated and more liberal for jobs and economic opportunities and have brought their politics with them rather than going there and then and then sort of sinking into they're not moving there for the lower tax burden although they are because they're often there because that's where business is set up. But that also speaks to your point about the media. You used to move to a new place. And if you were sort of, you know, reasonably educated or curious human being, you would get the local newspaper, right? I'm thinking pre-internet here, but like you read the local paper, you're somehow embedded in local communities, which might then in over time educate you to the concerns of your local area. These people move from San Francisco to the, to, you know, the Buckhead neighborhood of Atlanta, and they're still reading the digital New York times. And they're, you know, they're reading all the same stuff. They're not, nothing has shifted their worldview, even if they've changed their locale. Right. But in in any case, the, 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 the mobility crisis itself, uh, which, you know, which, uh, Nick Eberstadt is inclined to think of as a kind of spiritual crisis. 
And so is Yuval, so is Ross Douthat. You know, the, these are people who look at this. I mean, some of this is literally the result of people in 2008 owning homes that were suddenly worth 35% less than they were, but still having mortgage payments. And any sale, any move was going to put them in a deeper financial hole because they would have sold at a loss. They would have had to cover their loss and then buy a new home somewhere else and deal with the transaction costs involved in selling and buying and and basically harm themselves rather than rather than help themselves in the process of trying to find of trying to get ahead. To the extent that that started to level out, I just don't know that we have, the pandemic has now interfered with our ability to see whether some of those trends, those mobility crisis trends, may have been alleviating themselves because of the improvement in the overall financial picture of the country and then the fact that 56% of people in that Gallup poll in September or whenever it was said that they were better off than they had been four years ago. I, I feel like there's an aspect of the mobility crisis that that doesn't get um, discussed a lot, and it's it's that... I feel like the country, and the, the, not not just the U.S. but elsewhere, has moved away from not a strictly uh, apprenticeship uh, sort of model of of moving up, but but a sort of model that's kind of governed by that idea that if you you put in time in one place, you know, and you you learn and you and you branch out and you and you begin to associate with people who do what you do on your level and above you and you, and you move up if you, if you show yourself um, um, as being worthy. Um, and that's been replaced uh, to, by a kind of credentialism that is very prohibitive in terms of moving up. And, and is, it is that very credentialism that is championed by those who say mo- social mobility is dead in the U S uh, the system's broken um, and people can't move up, but it is, but it, it is their sort of um, prizing of degrees and and you know um, ex- expert credentials that that actually um, keeps keep people out of the game. Well, worse, th- there's an effort by that same elite to cut off the the ways to be credit to reach that credentialing mm-hmm. process for the very people who are least likely to have those opportunities. These are the the sort of um, the the public schools that a lot that are competitive and testing. You know, we see this in New York and San Francisco here in D.C. and the Virginia suburbs, where they're trying to prevent the working class, the kids of working class people who often happen to be of Asian descent from having that that on-ramp is closing for them because they want to turn this into a way to manage a kind of racial crisis that, right. that has nothing to do with merit. It's also interesting because that credentialism itself is based, I think, often on a false premise, which is that people who go through college, go through four years of college and end up with a BA are better prepared to be workers in the 21st century. Now, that may be true in literal ter- terms about somebody who literally doesn't go beyond high school or doesn't get through high school and doesn't sort of, it's not that they don't learn, you know, sort of skills or something like that. It's that it's that they are not, uh, they're not matured over time inside institutions that help teach them a certain kind of behavior, get along to go along behavior that they can carry with them through their lives. That said, um, I don't know what a BA gets you in the, uh, you know, in 2020. Like, uh, you know, 
businesses it definitely doesn't are, teach delayed gratification anymore. Well, there's <laughs> that, but it also, but aside aside from that, aside from the marshmallow test, I mean, you know, businesses are highly specialized. Businesses are getting more and more and more specialized in what they do. You know, it's not like you go to work for Xerox and you know in 19. 19- 55 and then you do x and then you go into marketing and then you go into management and then you run a plant you know that there are 10 or 12 or 15 different things that that a that a uh, an old-time vertically integrated conglomerate had that you know where you can move around and do lots of different things whereas the you know now it's all sort of they're much more specialization and you go in and you're taught the skill when you get there because you don't bring any skills with you. What skills do you bring with you if you go to work for Novartist? I mean, I don't know. You know, if you're a pharmaceutical salesman, what skills do you bring? I, I have no idea, but I don't think that you bring skills aside from being 22 years old or 23 years old and being a little older and being a little, you know, and, and, and maybe haven't gotten your yayas out a little more and sort of understanding that you shouldn't, you know, you, th- that's where the marshmallow test is a, a little bit like that you, you, you shouldn't, you need to go home after the third beer instead of staying at the bar all but night. But that, that's a lesson that, so I have friends and family members who went right out of high school into either the military or the trades, right? They never went to college. They have to practice those skills on day one or else they'll lose their job or they'll get court-martialed or kicked out, right? I mean, right. They're, they're, I, there's actually more built-in discipline in that institutional structure than there is nowadays right. in the four-year college campus experience. No, absolutely. So I'm just saying the credentialism itself is based on a false premise by the institutions that prize it. Mm-hmm. And- we assume that the market will correct for that, but it's very slow to correct for it because, of course, everybody who needs to correct for it is is himself a product of the same credentialing structure. You know, so having somebody like Peter Thiel say, you know what, I don't want college graduates. I'll, you know what, I'll pay you to leave college and come work for me is seen as insane it's insane and wacky and he's a lunatic and he wants to live on islands and you know he's nuts but he's on to something which is don't waste your time doing that because it's not really gonna help you except in the way that credentialism helps you which is that you it gives you a ticket into a club but if the club doesn't itself mean enhanced productivity greater ability and all of that, which I think we can pretty fairly say it really doesn't anymore if it ever did. But there's a lot of entrenched institutional ways in which that club has dug its claws in. And I'm thinking of affirmative action here, right? Any challenges to affirmative action are in reality, a challenge to legacy and rich donor admissions to colleges, because in order to have, they keep affirmative action to actually protect the kids of wealthy donors and the legacy admissions and the athletes. That's the real reason they have that. You know what is fascinating to me? I only I found this out a couple weeks ago, and I'm still sort of staggered by it. That, you know, Harvard, which is obviously could be the most selective college in the United States, in the sense that, you know, there is almost no one who will turn down and it, you know, a, a, you know, an offer from Harvard to go to Harvard. Forty percent of Harvard's admittees are legacy. 40%. You know what? That that number could be 0%. Because 
because Harvard doesn't have a market problem. Not only doesn't have a market problem, but if it if it is privileging legacies for financial reasons, meaning they want you know a sort of continuum of donors and donations and all that, Harvard is a giant hedge fund with forty in excess of forty billion dollars at play in the markets. How much more money does Harvard need? So, I mean, that's a key point here, not only about credentialism, but about the nimbyism of the technocratic elite. Like, they are pulling the bridge up, but they are pulling the ladder up behind them and making it increasingly difficult. They are, on the one hand, making it increasingly difficult for people not to be part of them to get into the upper echelons of America, but they're making it increasingly difficult to be one of them. Right. It's a it's a and, fascinating and, But the thing about the credentialism, so so... They were always, you know, pulling the bridge up behind them. But there was this other um, way. There was this alternative um, sort of track to to move up uh, in, in American society and in the workplace that di- had, didn't have anything to do with Harvard. You know, you 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 went from being a, a, a car mechanic to being a, a, a car manufacturer or a, or a busboy to a restaurateur or, or whatever it was, and that. Yeah. Is that that has been being blocked simultaneously now? Right. So, guys, uh, given the stress of the conversation that we've just had and how and how unfair it all seems, that's why I want to talk to you about Headspace. You've been hearing me talk about Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy to use app. One of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and medication through clinically validated research. So look, whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. If you feel overwhelmed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. If you need some help falling asleep, Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. Headspace approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads, Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Uh, Abe, uh, you uh, took an interest in an uh, article today uh, bemoaning, uh, once again, bemoaning the uh, marginalization of libertarians in our political process. That's right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always interested in um, sort of the, the place of libertarians and libertarianism in our politics, because I think while I'm not a libertarian at all, I think um, libertarians are interesting. They're interesting people. And it's, it's always a valuable and interesting sort of critique of uh, our politics and, and of conservatism in particular. So, you know, over the past few years, we've heard that Sometimes there's a libertarian moment that we're all just supposedly um, uh, on the verge of, um, where where libertarianism is becoming popular. This was you heard a lot about this, especially during the Bush years, because there was the turn against the war, and you know uh, libertarians were very against that. Um, and but uh, they hated compassionate conservatism. That's right. That's they right. didn't like No Child Left Behind, the nationalization of education, all of that. Precisely. Okay. Yeah. So um yeah no there's a, there's a piece in reason by um JD Tuchili 
um, titled Libertarians Have No Home in Either Dominant Political Party. Um, and he goes on to first say that um, there are there are some reasons to think that um, libertarianism is sort of um, um, has has a kind of good record uh, recently because uh, he quotes he quotes um, someone as, as saying that, uh, for example, in this past presidential election, the number of votes that uh, Yo Jorgensen, the uh, the libertarian presidential candidate, received in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Pennsylvania exceeds Joe Biden's margin over Donald Trump in all those states. In other words, had l- the libertarians in each of those states voted for Mr. Trump, he would have been reelected handily. Um, first of all, on that, I would just want to say that um, that doesn't having a, a spoiler effect. In a, in a two-party election, in a, doesn't mean that the third party, uh, the ideas have any significant purchase. It, it, it's very dependent on the dynamics of that election. And, um, you know, if, if any third party candidate of some sort of, you know, of sufficient renown can, can throw off the balance. Um, but it, by the, by the way, the other thing is talk about a condescension toward voters like, uh, why would he assume that a libertarian voter denied the right to vote for the libertarian candidate would vote for Trump? The libertarian right. who hates government uh, is not going to vote for the sitting president who, you know, expanded the debt to a trillion and a half dollars. There are precisely two types of libertarians, libertarians who hate Democrats and libertarians who hate Republicans. And there is no in between. That's interesting. Well, well, we'll get, let me just finish his. his yeah, go ahead. So, Sorry. Yeah. So he says, you know, and he points out that the the libertarian had a, a decent showing in the Arizona, a good showing in the Arizona Senate race, a decent showing in the Indiana governor's race, um, and that uh, states like Arizona, South Dakota, Mississippi, Montana, and elsewhere, they relax their drug laws, which is a longstanding um, libertarian idea. So then he then he writes. So why are we still treated as untouchable by both of the major political parties? The answer lies almost certainly in the two parties' disinterest in courting those who want to live and let live for fear they'll alienate other constituents. And he goes on, more than ever, that leaves libertarians without a home in either of the major political parties. It also incidentally leaves the United States without a major political party, even slightly inclined to leave people alone to manage their own affairs. Um, I think a lot of this is true, but I think he's he's missing something here, which is that um, what's happened is I think on the left and the right, um, Democrats and Republicans have taken different things associated with libertarian. They've taken the fun stuff and left the rest. <laughs> so liberals have taken the libertinism, Right. They're they're all you know they're all into the you know legalizing the drugs, and you know fighting on behalf of sex workers and all that, and um, something he doesn't get into nearly enough in the piece is that the populist right has taken this um, sort of um, this their, this critique of tech, technocratic governance right and the 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 anger at um, uh, sort of you know incompetent governance and. To some extent, uh, uh, they're, they're making a civil libertarian argument on the populist right, but they're leaving aside all the questions about, you know, private privatizing sidewalks or, or, or you know, whatever else. So I think libertarianism has kind of been atomized, and um, the 
the fun stuff, the this the stuff that you can get either really angry about or sort of celebrate has just been um, sucked up by both sides. So that's a really interesting <clears throat> observation because you know the two party. I, I, that gets a lot of grief, but the two party system has been so durable in this country because both coalitions do a really good job of representing the critical mass of voters in this country. And when one coalition changes or adopts a position that uh, you know, maybe is contrary to what it previously believed in, which is, you know, what we went through from the Republican party over the course of the Trump era, the other party sort of picks up the slack and adopts and changes and adopts the position that um, for those who have been abandoned and the two coalitions, you know, this is Sean Trende's analogy that it's basically a water balloon where if you push on one side, the other side goes up, you push on the other side, the other side goes up. They're doing a really good job balancing those aspects out. You know, the, the biggest problem that I've always had with a libertarian ideology is it's semi-isolationist foreign policy. And, you know, that too is represented particularly well uh, on the left, uh, on the progressive left. Um, which, you know, so leaves you to believe that or really analyze it. You know, there isn't much of a market. It's not that there's no market for libertarianism per se. It's that the market is being filled mm-hmm. by people they, they would prefer wouldn't or didn't fill it. Another way to look at it is that libertarian analysis is very valuable. Using a libertarian frame can be very valuable in in a certain type of empirical analysis, which is... Uh, you say, what would happen if there were no X, as opposed to what happens with this kind of a jury-rigged system in which we have some of X, but not all that much, or something like that. So in a, a libertarian analysis that says that government involvement in the economy in any way, shape, or form is bad, uh, where you can go with that is... For example, what are the distorting effects of the decision to uh, allow people to deduct healthcare costs, or not people, but corporations to provide healthcare with a you know basically uh, in a tax deductible frame? What has that done to our healthcare system? Clearly, it has distorted it and made it incredibly messy and complicated and it's a 70 year 75 year problem that we are you know in desperate need of reforming or what about the decision to uh in order to create home ownership in the united states to create a mortgage for uh, uh to create a deduction for home mortgages so the only way you can really examine that is say what would happen if there were no deduction for home for for mortgages. You get what and I think the end result of it is it's an interesting analysis because then it raises this question of whether or not there was a gigantic there's been gigantic inflation, regressive inflation in home prices because of course the 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 larger your mortgage is, the larger your deduction is and that basically privileges the well, uh, you know, wealthy home ownership over over owning, you know, owning a home that's uh, cheaper, and so blah 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 blah. However, um, the problem with all libertarian analysis is the transition. So you have this analysis, and then you have to say, well, you know what? We should get rid of the home mortgage deduction. Okay, but what happens in the ten years between when you get rid of it and when? 
prices ratchet down to their proper level, in which case there's no longer a distortive effect of the market, tens of millions of people are immiserated. So it's valuable as a public policy tool. As a solution, it can be very, very bad also, and, 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 and unworkable. Yeah, and it's, you know, what, something it has, I think, in common with a type of leftism is that it's not always clear where the limiting principle is in, in libertarianism. I mean, by design, you know, it's because uh, the idea is to keep going. The less government, the better. Well, I think uh, their their role as intellectual gadflies for both the left and the right is really useful, and 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 I always appreciate it, and particularly the folks at Reason who who uh, write so well about it. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but all of the, the one of the problems I've always had with libertarianism is that all the people I knew who matured into their libertarianism began as anarchists, like right, they were the philosophy majors who were anarchists in college, and now they call themselves libertarians. So there is a sense in which. The whole point, the the baseline is there never should be limiting principles, right? right? Either in one direction or the other. And that's, I think, why as a policy matter, it's a wonderful provocation on many scores. And drug legalization is a good example of this, the experimentations that have been going on in different communities of drug legalization. But then you get to things like sex workers and whatnot. And the average person starts to go, eh, we should probably have some limits on some of these things. Well, I, I, I think this is actually libertarian economic philosophy is going to be a particularly valuable critique of the Republican party moving forward because there there's the loudest voices on the right now are beholden to what they're calling common good capitalism, which is really just social engineering in the tax code, um, that ta- creating a tax code that discourages business practices that are perceived to be unfair from the point of view of Washington, which don't create the proper incentives for, uh, reinvestment, not in capital, um, which is what a business would do and should do left to its own devices, but in um, compensating workers to a degree that the market wouldn't readily support, um, which we would otherwise call progressivism in any other context. Um, there's quite a lot of this with Marco Rubio is one who's, uh, who he, you know, his big thing is that China is, you know, uh, gobbling up all of Earth's rare minerals, rare mineral production. This is the biggest national security threat that we face in the near future. And it's it's a bizarre thing to predicate the entire reformation of the tax code and reorganization of society on. But it is something that is becoming quite popular. And there is a libertarian critique of the right that I think um, is going to generate a fair amount of purchase among those who weren't all that convinced by the Trump phenomenon, or were not convinced necessarily by its policy prescriptions, but were enticed by the sort of temperamental affect that the Republican Party evinced over the course of the Trump era, a much more combative Republican Party. Those who confuse that that appeal with an economic populism are going to be outbid by the left every single time. I don't know, because look, the um, we talk a lot about regulation and how regulation is a form of Uh, liberal control of the market without taking control of the market. It's a way of making private entities pay for things that you want by, by, you know, either by by imposing regulatory regimes on them that make them hire people or make them, you know, do things in certain ways that raise their, raise the cost and therefore help support constituencies that work in the weird interstices between government and the economy and, and, and the public. And that's one thing. That's sort of like the liberal 
way that people do it. The way conservatives use their political have tended to use their political power um, is is by futzing around with the tax code by providing uh, benefit, you know, by by um, you know using tax cutting, not just general tax cutting, but specific forms of tax cutting to uh, you know uh, privilege things or to say we want these things to happen as opposed to those things. And it's all very distorting, and the libertarian economic critiques of both are really powerful and very important. The idea that American politicians are going to give up the only ways they have to be able to go to the um, to their voters and say, I did something to help you, is delusional. That is not the way politics works in the United States. What the United States has that no other democracy has is a constitutional structure that makes it more difficult rather than less difficult for government to do this stuff. And by the way, you know, liberals should be thinking about this after their whole, you know, meltdown over the last four years over the Electoral College and everything like that. And I understand now they won, they won the election, they won 306 electoral votes, so they're going to, they're going to care less and all of that. But what's happened over the last three or four weeks uh, with you know Trump, uh, Trump's effort to overturn the results of the elections in various states is a credit to the very federalist structure that they are you know they are constantly assaulting, right? Which is fifty states. Fifty states have their own courts. Fifty states have their own electoral rules. Have their own electoral ways of doing things. Have di- and so the idea that there is there was literally no way for Trump from the top down to interfere with the post-election structures in these states. He could he could threaten Republican politicians. He could seduce Republican people working in various fields. But he did not have control of the judiciary. He did not have control of elected Republican officials who had their own understandings of what it would be to act in certain ways and what they promised voters and elector and all of that. And it, it couldn't be done. And, um, and in that sense, the libertarian, the, the, the key thing that libertarians have that others don't r- anymore, really, including the Republican party or is a reverent is, is a certain genuine reverence for the bill of rights and the way in which it is the limiting principle that you're talking about, Abe. Right, so that's gun rights, that's speech rights. Uh, Robbie, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Suave, like Rico Suave, but Robbie Suave of Reason, who has done, I think, the, probably the best writing in America on the threats to to free speech on 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 campus and by wokery uh, in Reason. Um, you know, uh, all kinds of things, including you know Rick Perry's bizarre governor, you know, former governor Rick Perry's bizarre loathing of of uh, you know the direct election of senators as a as a even though that's a constitutional amendment but as a violation of the federalist structure as laid out in the you know in 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 the first articles of the constitution um you know all of this is like a real contribution to american life but you know what's not a contribution to american life the idea that what's really great is for to have people like stoned all the time <laughs> i mean I think that the great libertarian successes of the last day has been pushing, you know, drug legalization. Uh, but okay, we'll see what America's like in 30 years when everybody can buy pot freely. 
30 like years? Been... Okay. Yeah. yeah I, it's, I mean, it's I know. Now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's been now yeah. for a yeah. while. Okay. I don't know. We don't know. But, uh, but uh, you know, I don't really think that's going to benefit American society in the aggregate. But what do I know? And with that, we will bring this discussion to a close. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. We'll see you tomorrow. Keep the candle burning.